Please remain standing as we pray together. Lord Jesus, you promised to send the comforter, the helper, the advocate, the one who comes alongside. You promised to send the Holy Spirit so that he would remind us of all the things that you have said and that he would teach us. So now, Lord, honor your word, honor your promise as we know you will, and send your Holy Spirit in this moment, Lord, that you might teach your people again using the vessel of a preacher and all of us gathered together as your listening body. Speak your truth through through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God into our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, by this time, more than likely, some of our congregation have begun to totally freak out. Some of them are on the verge of screaming. Some of them have hunkered down and are sobbing to themselves. Some of them are acting out and becoming aggressive and petulant. But before you look around the sanctuary to try to find these people, you need to know they're in the nursery. And I'm not talking about the caregivers. I'm talking about those infants and toddlers who are experiencing the pain of separation anxiety. And in spite of our bright and pleasant nurseries and the safety of the surroundings and the caring attendants, our little ones probably are not happy that mom and dad have left them back in the nursery today. You know, I'm, I'm 54 years old. I know you're thinking, gosh, you look so much younger than that. But no, I really am. <laughs> it's, it's been a rough 54 years. Uh, <laughs> I'm 54 years old, and I can still remember being dropped off at Fellowship Methodist Church in Hamlet, North Carolina, in the nursery on Sunday morning. I still remember the taste of stale um, soda crackers. I I still remember the taste of grape Kool-Aid. I still remember the perfume of eau de diaper pail. I mean, even to this day, I still remember it. And I think I remember it. So I'm not kidding. I really do. I can remember the paint on the walls. And I think I remember it so clearly is because I was traumatized by the fact that my parents handed me over to strangers. I mean, they were big, squishy ladies, and they were nice. But still, I didn't know who these people were. They were leaving me in a dank basement nursery. I didn't know if they'd ever be back. And I wasn't really sure I liked my company. I didn't, like, I didn't know if I liked those kids. Back in the day when I was in nursery, um, they had this purple stuff that they would put you know, on skin. It, was, it wasn't mercurochrome. It wasn't methylate. It was, it was something purple. And I, it was just like a badge of, of this child is unclean. When those, you know, I think if you had ringworm, they put purple stuff on you. And I'm not making this up, y'all. They're, and I knew to stay away from those kids. But I wonder, why, why aren't you quarantined? You know, why are you, why are you in this nursery with me? If they have to put purple stuff on you, they've like dyed you with one of those paint guns out in the cow field. I'm not sure what's going on, but they were distraught. I felt utterly alone and abandoned. And I look back though on it and I'm sure that that nursery actually was very bright and well lit. And I know it was staffed with caring adults and it was filled with stimulating toys. Look, blocks were stimulating toys in my day. Okay. I love the ones with the letters on them. They were awesome. But the fact that my mom and dad weren't there made it seem like a dungeon to me. The presence of a mother and a father in a child's life represents love and security and a sense of well-being. So when, when they leave, it creates fear and it creates a troubled heart. Where are you going? How long are you going to be away? 
When are you coming back? Who's going to take care of me? And that's precisely how the disciples are feeling in this reading from John's gospel this morning. The occasion here is the Last Supper, and Jesus is giving what is called in John's gospel the Last Supper discourse, and he is telling them that he is going away. And he tells them three or four times, and each time they ask him another series of questions. You know, uh, they, you know they, he tells them they're going away, and Peter says, well, what does that mean? And then Philip wants to know what that means, and Thomas wants to know what it means, and then, and then Judas, not Iscariot, wants to know what it means. How would you like to, to have that as your last name for the rest of your life? Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> what does it mean that you're going away? Their hearts are troubled. And they respond with the same kind of questions that children ask when their parents leave for a while. It's also the kind of questions that the early church was asking as well. And it's the same basic questions that, that Christians ask today. How will I still be close to God? How am I supposed to be close to God? How can I know that he is with me? Will he stay with me through an uncertain future? And those are all things that we want to know. Well, Jesus answers those questions for his disciples there in the upper room, and he answers those questions for his disciples gathered together in this room this morning, and he does it in the context of the passage we just heard read out of John's gospel. He promises that he's not going to abandon them. Earlier in this passage, we could have read it. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And he goes on to explain how he's going to be present with them. He tells them that he's going to be with them through the Holy Spirit. And by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son also come to make their home with those who have come to be his disciples. And we hear that in chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father, the Father's who sent me. Now, there's several things that present themselves in this passage that directly relate to our closeness with God. So we want to know about how to stay close to God, how to feel his presence, how to know that he is with us, how to have those separation anxiety questions answered. This is the passage to go to. And first of all, we see here that the love for Jesus is not merely a feeling of affection for Jesus. You know, many people think that they love Jesus because they have some warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. Um, They have basically uh, the Doobie Brothers theology, you know. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. (laughs) And they think that that's enough. They have warm, positive, I mean, but who doesn't feel warm, positive feelings about Jesus? It's hard to find somebody that doesn't feel that way. But many people think that just because they have positive feelings when they hear the name Jesus, that they're a good person, and they're going to go to heaven, and all that good stuff. But here in the the South, it's almost impossible to find somebody who's not going to tell you that they have affection for Jesus, even if they're not churchgoers. There's even, and I'm not making this up, I looked it up again this week to make sure it was still out there, there's an organization called Atheists for Jesus. He's just that popular, (laughs) y'all. No kidding. But Jesus said that just saying that you love him is not sufficient. There's a parallel passage to this found in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount in our daily Bible reading called the Daily Office, and we're coming to this passage as well. 
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and following, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, the people who say nice things about me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Love for Jesus is demonstrated by obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the amazing thing. One of the great promises of the Christian faith is given by Jesus in this passage, but it is a promise that we take for granted. It's a promise that we don't think about and and just say to ourselves, kind of with our heads uh, shaking in wonder, who could have have ever imagined such a thing. And here's the promise right here. The true and living God, the true and living God comes to dwell with and in each believer. Think about that. Think about the the amazing promise that is that somehow through the Holy Spirit, the true and living God comes to live in me. And in you, what a wonderful promise. And we take it for granted so often. You see, following, following Christ is not merely an outward observance of rituals, but we love our rituals. They mean a lot. They're very instructive. They're didactic, and they also form our affections. But they're not, it's not merely a set of rituals. It's not merely an intellectual assent to the Nicene or the apostles or even the Athanasian Creed, which is in the prayer book and never seen. It's back there hiding. You should get it out sometime, take a look at it. But it's not merely an ascent to those things. It certainly is, but it's not merely that. No, following Christ is literally having the one who created the universe living in each of, in each of us in a way that transforms our existence, not in some far future time, but presently in the here and now, God living in my life, making a difference in every moment of my existence. And to fully experience that sense of union with God that we're promised, that closeness to God that we're promised, we have to walk in obedience to Christ. Now, a good example of this is a child. If a child is walking in obedience to her parents or his parents, then there is that wonderful sense of closeness. There's community. There's fellowship. If a child is walking in disobedience to that parent, that parent-child bond is not severed by that child's disobedience. That child doesn't stop being a child of the parent. They're a disobedient child. But what is lost is a sense of closeness, a sense of fellowship, maybe even a sense of love. It's there, but it's, it's not palpable. It's not experienced. And the same thing is true for us. Our closeness and unity with God are interrupted in our disobedience. We cannot know God or experience his presence, his love, his direction for our lives if our life is characterized by disobedience. But as we obey Christ, God the Father and God the Son come through the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how this happens, but it does to dwell with us. And and here's what that means. So we need to get this straight. When we hear obedience... Probably because we have a sinful human nature, because uh, the inclination of our heart is to disobey God. When we hear the word obedience, it almost sounds negative. 
It almost sounds stifling. It almost sounds like, oh, there goes all the fun out of life when we hear the word obedience. But brothers and sisters, obedience, Christ tells us, because it means closeness to God, is blessedness and joy. Blessedness and joy. It does not turn us into servile, cringing, groveling toadies. And that's why many people think when they hear the term obedience. Rather, obedience to our Lord. Here's what happens in the obedient Christian's life. You are exalted through obedience. You are drawn into his glory through obedience. To be an obedient follower of Jesus means there is joy in your life. There means that there is glory in your life. There's exaltation in your life. Elizabeth Elliot, who many of us know because uh, years ago she was a frequent speaker at InterVarsity and Campus Crusade events. She's the wife of Jim Elliot, who, who died in the 1950s, uh, gave his life in witnessing uh, to Christ in South America to an unreached people group. But Elizabeth Elliot uh, went on to be a, a very favored Christian speaker and writer. She tells about one time when she stayed in the farmhouse of a Welsh shepherd and his family in, up in the uh, high, high in the mountains of North Wales. I think the area is called Snedonia, if I'm not mistaken. She stood watching one misty morning as the shepherd was on horseback in this case, and he was herding the sheep with the aid of his champion border collie. Some of you have seen border collie's work. It's amazing. The collie she realized was, listen, the collie she realized was in its glory. And if you've seen one of these dogs work, you know what she means. It was doing what it had been bred to do, what it had been trained to do. Its eyes were always on the sheep, but its ears were delicately tuned to obey the voice of the master. Through obedience, the dog experienced his glory. The same is true in the spiritual realm. As Mrs. Elliot insightfully summarized, to experience the glory of God's will for us means absolute trust. It means the will to do His will, and it means joy. So put far away from your mind that walking in obedience to Christ somehow diminishes us, uh, somehow takes something away from us. It is our glory and our joy. Now, togetherness with God, remaining close to God, is accomplished in the obedient believer's life through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're moving towards the day of Pentecost in our own calendar, the Feast of Pentecost. And the importance of the Spirit in these readings as we move towards that day is becoming even more and more prevalent and even more and more at the forefront. When the Father and the Son come to make their home with us, we experience that through the Holy Spirit. So when we feel Him present... We're experiencing the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in verse 25 of John 14, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, in this passage that we just read, Jesus uses a very powerful term to describe the Spirit. In our text, in the English Standard Version, it is translated helper. But maybe in your version, if you have a different version, it might be the counselor or the comforter or the advocate. The word in the Greek there is actually paraclete. That word literally means one who is called to come alongside. One who's called to come and stand alongside. That's what paraclete means. That's the word that Jesus is using for the Holy Spirit. It was used in the ancient world to describe a defense attorney, an advocate in a, in a courtroom setting where someone would come and speak on behalf of the person who was the defendant, and that was a paraclete. 
but it was used in many other ways as well. In fact, it's a far richer term than just thinking about it as being a defense counsel. No, listen. The Holy Spirit, the counselor, the paraclete, is God right beside us, right with us to guide us, to protect us, to defend us, to comfort us, to help us. Let me tell you, I don't know if you knew this, if you got the memo or not, but it is impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. If you try to live the Christian life in your own strength by bootstrapping yourself into holiness, you know, first of all, I just want to ask, how's that working out for you? It does not work. We cannot live this life in our own strength. We need the paraclete, the helper. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is in our lives to teach us. He teaches the church. He said, and, and this is interesting because he said that he wouldn't bring new revelation that contradicted his teachings, but the Spirit would deepen our understanding of what Jesus said and help us to remember what he said. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this is a very important and pressing point, especially in our culture today. Because there are many in the church in the West, North America and Europe and Australia and New Zealand and the Western world that are saying that the Holy Spirit is leading them to new truth, that God is teaching and doing a new thing. But they are saying this in the context of them promulgating and disseminating teachings that are directly contradictory to the teaching of Jesus revealed in Holy Scripture. Now, let me ask you something. If based on what Jesus says here, that the Spirit would remind us of everything that he said, if, if the Spirit, if the people are saying that the Spirit is speaking a new thing, but they are teaching something that is literally almost line by line contrary to what Jesus said, is that genuinely the Spirit of God? No, Jesus says that's not the Spirit. He reminds you of everything that I've said. He's not making new, new stuff up that leads you away from what he's already taught in Scripture. And the reason that many people are taken in by this is because they don't know what Jesus said to begin with. They've not read the Scriptures. You know, people died, literally died, to give us the Bible in our own language, in a translation that we could read, that every person, every follower of Jesus could, you know, that the, um, I think it was Tyndall that said that the plowman would have as easy, would be as well-versed in Scripture as the bishop, that you would have the ability to have God's Word right there in front of you. And if we don't know what Jesus says, there's no one stopping us. Why aren't we reading the Scriptures? But if we don't read the Word of God, we will be led astray by these people who are saying, well, the Spirit is saying it's something really new now. Well, it may be a Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Comforter that Jesus has sent to us. This is a great way to judge and to test whether the teaching we are receiving is indeed Spirit-led. Is it does it constantly refer back to Jesus? Is the teaching that I'm hearing, supposedly from the Spirit, is it leading me back to Jesus? Is it consistent with the clear revelation of God present, present in Jesus Christ? Does what, what someone telling me is a Spirit-led teaching, is that, does that match up with the person of Jesus I see in the New Testament? Or does it introduce something that contradicts Christ's teaching? If it's, contradicting the word of, if it's contradicting the Word of God, it is not the Holy Spirit. And yet there are people running around with purple shirts today 
They're telling you they're a part of the Jesus movement, and they're teaching you stuff that Jesus said. It was very clear that that is not what he meant. They're being motivated by a spirit, but it is not the spirit of God. And there's a wonderful promise here, too. Jesus says that the Spirit will bring all the things that he said to our remembrance. The Spirit of God, if you read the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is responsible for bringing the Scripture to your memory. And this, there's, not, there's not a sell-by date on this. I'm glad because, you know, I, this is still legit for me at my age. If I'm reading God's Word, the Spirit still will be bringing things to my memory. memory. And I know that if I were to ask you today, I could get testimonies of people saying, you know, I didn't even know that I remembered that passage. I'd read it a long time ago, and I was having a conversation with this friend of mine or this family member, and I needed to have something to say to them about, about what the Bible said. And all of a sudden, that verse from the Scriptures came to my remembrance. And I have no idea that how I did that. Well, we, have, we know. It's the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus says that the presence of the Holy Spirit, the closeness of God, being close to God, will grant us real peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, while the New Testament is written in a form of very common Greek, it's called Koine Greek of the first century, Jesus, in day-to-day life, most likely uh, spoke Aramaic and probably some Hebrew in there as well on a daily basis. And we know that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It's a a word most of us are familiar with. And that's at the background of this promise that Jesus gives. Shalom, brothers and sisters, means so much more than merely the absence of strife or conflict. Shalom means so much more than simply not being at war with someone. It means this. It means wholeness. It means peace of mind. It means fullness of well-being. And that is a product of being close to God, and that's what we all crave. And Jesus said that he doesn't offer us well-being, that sense of peace, in the same way that the world offers. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. The world is giving us false offers of well-being. False offers of flourishing. False offers of what the good life is. Now, if you're from my generation, the uh, name Irma Bombeck means something to you. She died in, uh, I guess it was been the early 2000s. Uh, she, uh, she was a, uh, an observer of, the, of just culture and, and a, witty, a witty lady that was published in a lot of newspapers. Um, and, uh, and, and she really summed up, certainly this was what I grew up with, she, she reveals how the world of North American consumerism offers its version of peace. And I don't think it's that dated. Listen to what she said. I did as I was told. I was fussy about my peanut butter. Fault cavities. Became depressed over yellow waxy buildup. <laughs> I was responsible for my husband's underarms being protected for 12 hours. I was responsible for making sure my children had a well-balanced breakfast. I alone was carrying the burden for my dog's shiny coat. We believed that if we converted to all the products that marched before our eyes, we would be the best, the sexiest, the freshest, the cleanest, the thinnest, the smartest, and the first on our block to be regular. But then she says something that's tragically true. 
and was for so many people. And I hope it isn't, but I'm afraid it might be. She said, purchasing for the entire family was the most important thing I had to do. And that's just sad. But that's a false promise of well-being through consumerism. You see, the peace that Jesus gives, the shalom that he offers, is directly connected to the reality that we will never have to be separated from the God that we love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from his love. All of these things that Christ mentions in this passage come together in full intensity here at the Lord's table. In this Eucharist celebration, we bring all those elements that we heard right here into the midst of this meeting of the body today. In this Eucharist celebration, we obey Jesus Christ because he commanded us to observe this meal. As often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. This is his command. We are being obedient. He promises his full closeness and obedience. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself makes his abode with us. He comes to us under these signs, these elements of bread and wine. And in this meal, we also recognize that Jesus is present and gathered in his gathered body, the church. And At times, the the presence of Christ is so intense at Holy Communion for many people, amazing things happen. Sometimes we don't see it right in that moment, but but sometimes we do. We become aware of Jesus' real presence. Um, I can't tell you the the times that I have come forward, just like on a a regular Sunday uh, as a congregant, and not really expecting that much to happen, but just putting my hands out like that, and somebody puts the bread in my hands, and they say the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, or the body of Christ, which was given for you. And in that moment, such gratitude and, and thankfulness, oh my gosh, you really have given yourself, you're really here. Some have received healing, literal physical healing at the Lord's table. It happens. It's happened. Some received their prayers answered right during that moment of communion. Some have been delivered, delivered from besetting sins. And yes, some have fallen into ecstatic states, and they're called ecstatic. I, can, I can't even say it. I'm ecstatic. <laughs> ecstatic states as they are caught up into heaven almost palpably by the power of the Spirit. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you want to stay close to Jesus? Do you want to remain? Do you want to have that sense of his presence? Do you want to get past the separation anxiety? Well, brothers and sisters, there's a place to begin, and it's called literally communion. Come to this feast in obedience, with repentance and faith. Come to this feast expecting his promises. Come and know that he and the Father and the Spirit together will make their home with you because he is a faithful God and he keeps his word. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.